This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Three, two, one, and welcome listeners to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Now, we were just talking before we went live here about the problems uh, with our American names being mispronounced here in Norway. How, how, what are some of the versions that they come up uh, for your name? Well, you know, the, we have to go back to the U.S. for that story because oh, wow. you know, me, me growing up in the States in the 70s, basically no one was named Evan. Um, you know, everybody else, like for, for example, you wanted to buy a keychain with John on it or a coffee mug or whatever. No problem. Evan, forget it. Didn't exist. Didn't so exist. No. Now as an, now as an adult, I see like keychain with Evan on it and I buy it, even though I don't need the thing. <laughs> but the, the other thing is that, uh, you know, people would just write my name even in the U S and drove mm-hmm. me absolutely crazy. And I thought, Oh, finally, I'm going to move to Norway where at least Evan Right. With the, spell, with the same spelling as even is actually a real name. I thought, well, hurrah, at least I can I can have a real name. <laughs> and then and then I, I found out without saying anything too disparaging of our, uh, of, you know, our adopted country. here. We love but, them. Uh, we love them. We love them. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, why on earth do you need three extra letters in the alphabet when you don't know the difference between V and W? So more often than not, people spell my name Ewan. Oh, because boy. Ewan doesn't exist where we come from, so right. I read it. I read it as Ewan. It drives me absolutely up a wall. Every wow. now and then I get Evan, and that's fine. I don't say anything. But Ewan, no Ewan. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, well, they're trying. They're trying. <laughs> so, what are you drinking there? Is that a cup of tea? Cup of coffee? That, is that? That's, is a, cup, that's a cup of tea. Okay, because I was wondering if you're getting started on your own product already. What time is it now? It's noon, so you could start. You you could with a clear conscience start drinking alcohol now. <laughs> you know, it's it's five o'clock somewhere. It's five so. o'clock somewhere. <laughs> yeah. If uh, you know, if this was a work day and I was sitting at work, I'd be drinking tea out of a half liter German beer stein. And, and so uh, it's you know, every now and then a team's meeting, someone's like, "Hey, uh, what's the brewery guy doing?" Well, I think it's really cool what you're doing with your brewery. Um, That is what uh, drew my attention to you in the first place. You know, um, as I was saying to you earlier, we're we're a handful of Americans here in Norway, and we all have a different story. Some of us have struggled. Some of us have done quite well. uh, Some of us have a combination of that. It looks like you have done quite well. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Tell us about your journey. First of all, when did you come here to Norway? 2004. So I'm just about to tick over 17 years. Okay. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's been a while. Uh, now, uh, was, was it a love interest? Was it one of these crazy Norwegian ladies that dragged you over here? Yeah. So I, I like to say that there, there are two stories. One's, <laughs> one is short and one is not so short. And the, sh- the short version is I met a girl. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but she didn't drag me here. I dragged her here. Okay. And, that, and that's where the story gets, gets kind of long. Um, it depends on where you want to start, how far you want to go back. But uh, let's yeah. go back to the beginning. Tell tell us, tell us the story. Right. So, born and raised in upstate New York, Rochester. Yeah. Uh, went to university in Ohio, studied music theory and composition. Ah, where in Ohio? I'm from Ohio. I went to uh, Heidelberg College, okay. now Heidelberg, now now called Heidelberg University, which is in Tiffin. Tiffin, our our yes. south of Toledo. Yeah. So I. Uh, I went from upstate New York to uh, to Cowtown, 
and uh, it was it was a bit of a culture shock. But I had sure. I had I had great years there studying music theory and composition. That's a degree that pretty well qualifies me to drink a lot of beer. <laughs> um, and actually, I started homebrewing when I was seventeen. How do you um, how do you start homebrewing? I mean, uh, why? My uh, my high school buddy Dave and I were sitting on a chairlift. We we're going to go skiing, and we're sitting on this chairlift and we're discussing our favorite things in the world. And I I, I think at the age of seventeen, that was pretty much uh, beer and girls. <laughs> and um, we were uh, we were kind of upset at the fact that at seventeen you can't legally buy beer in the U.S. Obviously, right. and right. Um, you know we were we were not just interested in getting drunk on cheap beer. We we're actually interested in the fact that there are a myriad of beer styles in the world and. And uh, luckily, Dave's dad would uh, would go to this this huge specialty beer store and, and buy us some uh, some stuff now and then, you know, specialty beers from all over the world. So we had exposure to uh, to you know all these all these craft beers and also big names from from all over the place. So we're sitting there on the chairlift and thinking like, you know, well, this kind of sucks. We're seventeen, we can't buy beer, and there's all this great stuff out there. Hey, maybe we should make our own. Let's and make the light, our the own. Light, there you the go. The light bulb went on, and you know the the seas parted, and the angels sang. And <laughs> so we, uh, you know, the the following week, we marched off to uh, the local home brewing store, and uh, the old guy running it, he didn't seem to care that we were high school students, and so we bought ingredients and equipment and a book, and uh, and went to work in Dave's parents' kitchen. And our first brew was a, was a dark porter and was actually a success. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. We used to sneak bottles in the back door to, uh, to the rector at the, or the headmaster at high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, in, instead of giving us a hard time, you know, I mean, it was like brown paper bag in the yeah. back door. And yeah. uh, instead of giving us a hard time, he would, he would come on it and say, okay, you know, this could be a, a little bit more carbonated or a little more of this or a little less of that. <laughs> Really? And, so uh, he was he was on board. With, he was uh, he was on board. He got free beer, of course. But this he is was, like some 1920s prohibition, uh, you know, uh, speakeasy type of stuff where yeah. the priest and the mayor were in on some kind of smuggling action or something. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty good. I mean, this is you know at the, at the tender age of seventeen, yeah. but he. Uh, he would know he was on board with it. And actually he retired a few years ago and I sent him an email and say, Hey, guess what? Thanks for, uh, thanks for the support to get me, uh, get me wow. going in the right, in the right direction. So anyway, I, I went to Ohio, studied music, finished that, decided I wanted to live in the desert and play rock and roll. So I moved out to, uh, to Albuquerque. I lived there a few years, played in rock bands and, uh, and had some fun and then figured out, okay, maybe, maybe I need to do something with my so life. That, that, that's how you made your living in Albuquerque through music. No, not through music. I was doing computer stuff at that point. Okay. okay. Um, actually I, when I first got there, I was fixing bicycles for a living. Okay. And you know, you, you, you've, you've just racked up all these student loans and all the debt from, uh, for doing a university degree and you go, all right, what am I going to do? Well, I'll go, go fix bicycles for six bucks an hour now. Right. Right. So, uh, but you know, it was a good experience. And after a while I, I got into computers and then web design and user interface design and multimedia and, uh, and saw that there was, there was a path I could follow there and figured out that, that, uh, Albuquerque wasn't going to be the place to stay. So I, uh, I jumped ship and moved to California, Bay area and lived outside of San Francisco. And, uh, and then I was, I was consulting to, uh, some pretty big companies, um, in Silicon Valley. And then, you know, this is, I moved there in 97 and so 97 to 2000, wow, 
I mean, it was it was a wild time. Lots of venture capital money and, sure, and sure. lots of work and yeah. pretty exciting. And, you know, the the important thread in all this is that the whole time I was brewing my own beer. Um, you know, next to the computer store where I worked in Albuquerque, it was a home brewing shop. And then I moved out to California and it was access to everything. So I was brewing more and more. And, now, yeah. now, at that time when you're brewing your own beer on the side, were you, did you have a solid recipe or were you experimenting and you were getting different uh, end products? You know, were, were you building up to something that you knew was going to work or were you just having fun? Well, I was having fun. I mean, I, I enjoy both the product, but also the craft of making it. And, you know, as as a, you know, as a, as a music composer, though I'm mostly decomposing these days. But anyway, <laughs> as, a, as a as a music composer, you know, I want to do my own thing. I want to create my own stuff. So following the recipes straight out of the book, that was something that, you know, we did in high school because we were just learning. Right. But uh, it didn't take long before everything was an experiment. Interesting. So that's a, so you started when you're 17. You're doing this consistently through uh, your schooling and your employment out in uh, on, on the West Coast. At what point did you meet your Norwegian wife? So it was uh, St. Patrick's Day, 99. And I, uh, I went out for a Guinness at my local brew pub. Now, my local brew pub was uh, was just uh, a mile down the street from my apartment. In uh, in Hayward, California, Buffalo Bill's Brew Pub was something like the uh, like the ninth uh, craft brewery ever in the U.S. Oh, okay. Started in started in eighty three, and I'd already been there a thousand times, so I'd I'd consumed all of their product. It was St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to go out and have a beer, and uh, I sailed in the back door, and uh, my lovely wife to be was standing in the uh, in the line for the bathroom, <laughs> and saw me and said, "I got to talk to that guy." And she can't tell you, she can't tell you why. She just said, I got to talk to that guy. And I'm sitting at the bar talking to a guy from Chicago about, of all things, homebrewing. And, uh, and these two bar stools open up next to me and this, uh, this beautiful lady sails in and, and lands on the bar stool next to me. And we talked for three and a half hours and that was that. So, uh, so my, my wife is from, uh, from a small town here in Western Norway in the fjords. And uh, she was living in California. What, what's uh, the name of the town? I'm pretty familiar out there in the West. She's from Lycongit. Lycongit, okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, she, she was, uh, she's, she's educated in business. And, you know, I like to say she's got more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> and um, she's, she's really solid business background. She was managing, uh, managing uh, big banks and, and other stuff in, uh, in the Bay Area. And um, then we met and... You know, at the, as I mentioned, you know, it was really the heyday of Silicon Valley coming up to uh, up to year 2000. And it was it was an exciting time. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, the opposite of a roller coaster. Yeah. Roller coasters boring on the way up uh, and a lot of fun on the way down. And this was the opposite because the way down was no fun at all. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, there was no work. There's no jobs. Certainly they're not hiring expensive consultants. Um, yeah, that was crazy but, times. People, uh, people gave up. People threw in the towel and literally took their lives over that crash, that the, the dot com crash. Uh, how rough was it for you? How did you experience that personally? Um, 
Well, we can look at it two ways. I mean, I was extraordinarily lucky because, you know, I was living with the love of my life and, you know, she had a good job and there's, there was that, that pillar of support every day. Yeah. But, you know, I'd gone from being very successful to very not successful. I mean, I dot, I dot bombed with everybody else Yeah. and started looking for jobs doing whatever, you know? And, you know, when, when you're a guy with a college degree and business experience and everything else, and you're at Home Depot trying to get a job and they're like, nah, we don't want somebody with your background. You're just going to leave. Oh you know? man, isn't that terrible? Oh. Yeah. And so stuff like that. And, you know, fortunately through some of my contacts, I was able to get a couple interviews. I got, a, I was interviewed at eBay, a job I didn't get. Um, and I, I interviewed at another company where the person doing the interviewing, she had worked with one of my former business partners at Apple. Okay. And really my resume got to the top of the pile just because of that connection. And, uh, I was one of 800 and some odd people that, that, uh, sent in a resume. Uh, it came down to two of us that got the second interview and the other guy got the job. Oh man. So that, that, that hurts. That, that hurts worse than being just thrown out with the first, you know, the first 300 or whatever. Maybe. Right, which is oh, most man. of it. And, you know, why did I not get the job? Well, <sighs> you know, you, clearly you're, you're dedicated, but you're, and you're, you're talented, you've got the portfolio, whatever. But, uh, you know, you've been working for yourself and we're afraid that just as soon as things pick up, you'll go back to doing that. So they want the guy that's, that's uh, you know, on, on the I work for somebody else career path. It's a curse to be a go-getter sometimes in the business world when you're trying to get a job that's maybe a step or two below the level that you once were. Um, been there, done that. It's not, yeah. it's not an easy thing to experience. So, you know, to answer your question, uh, that was a tough time. No question. That was a, sure. that was, that was a challenging time and I was, I was frazzled and, you know, I felt like, okay, California was fun, but now what? Um, it's a great place to live if you've got some money, but if not, man, it's a grind. It's yeah. crowded. It's, it's expensive. So, it's so expensive there. The housing yeah. costs alone, forget about the other living costs, just just to have a roof over your head is incredibly expensive there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, so, you know, mixed up in all this, the wife is, uh, is happily employed and she's, uh, you know, She's perfectly happy with a uh, nice house, nice car, nice weather. Has no intention of ever going back to Norway. Well, let, let me ask you this: What brought her from Norway to the states? She uh, well, she was an exchange student first of all. Okay. Um, her junior, senior year in high school, she was uh, in uh, Kansas City yeah. or outside of Kansas City um, as an exchange student, and then she decided she wanted to go back and study in the, in the U S uh, she had done one bachelor's in, in, uh, in Norway. She wanted to do a, a second bachelor's degree. So she picked university of San Diego and, and, uh, started doing an economics degree there. Okay. Yeah. And, and then just stayed and ended up doing an MBA after that. And, uh, yeah, right. she was right. just super happy in California. And, yeah. you know, for her, it was exotic and she was exotic being yeah. there, you know, oh, coming, absolutely. From, yeah. coming from little, little Norway. Yeah, so, yeah. uh, so she uh, she was perfect perfectly happy with that. Yeah, my but, wife was also an exchange student uh, in in upstate New York. As a matter of fact, I cannot remember where was it um, Newport or New Newark. 
yeah, some somewhere in upstate New York, she was a uh, an exchange student. So she got that exotic experience. You know, it was in small town upstate New York, but she just thought it was the greatest thing because it was so new. And she also felt she talks about it to this day that she felt kind of strange because all of a sudden uh, she went from being a normal uh relatively anonymous country girl here at home in Norway to being something exotic and popular. And everyone was so curious about her. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a bit of a turnaround. Yeah, definitely. And so that, that, that was entirely my wife's experience. Yeah. And so, yeah. but, uh, but she saw, you know, I was really struggling and it's okay, what are we going to do now? And in, um, in summer 2003, we came over to Norway for our wedding and, uh, you know, some of my family and friends came over and she's got a great big family. So my wedding day, I, I, I like to say that I got something like 35 new family members and that yeah. was just immediate family. Yeah. So, um, the big, a big crew. And, uh, after the wedding, um, my brother-in-law gave me and, and my dad and my brother a ride down to the express boat so they could take the boat back to Bergen and see a little bit more of Norway before they, before they headed back. Yeah to the States. And so, um, we were, we were married up at, uh, which is this uh, wonderful little group of cabins that my brother-in-law owns, uh, up in the mountains and absolutely pristine weather. I mean, 30 degree weather, uh, ah. in, in, in August uh, awesome. for three day for, th- for a three day wedding where you can't go anywhere. And it was really, uh, really a blast and a great awesome. experience for everybody. So we drive down to Aflom because that was the nearest place to catch the fast boat. And my brother-in-law says, Beautiful well, this- town, by the way. It is. It, it is. is. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful place. And so we get down to Aflom and, uh, and uh, get dad on the boat. And, and uh, my brother-in-law says, well, this, uh, this cafe and restaurant here is for sale. The owners have approached me about buying it. And uh, I'm not sure that I, uh, I want to do that, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. I said, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And, you know, we had an ice cream and chatted a little, but I didn't think more about it. No. And when a couple of months, I'm back in California and, um, you know, slaving away at, a, at an absolutely, absolutely horrible job. Um, so bad, I don't even want to tell you about it. And <laughs> that's another podcast episode. Yeah, yeah that's one in and of itself. And, um, and so my brother-in-law calls my wife and he said, you know what? our old mom's getting, getting old. My wife is second, the youngest of six siblings. And so, you know, our mother had her quite late You know, our mother's getting quite old. And, uh, you know, I've got an opportunity here. I think you and Evan should invest with me in this, uh, in this cafe and restaurant and bed and breakfast and come to Norway and run it. And then you can be closer to your mom and everything else. So he, you know, he, he played the mom's getting old card. (laughs) And uh, so I come home from work that day and my wife tells me that, yeah, you know, my brother called and, and, um, he's got this opportunity for us. And, uh, you know, I was, I would, my, you know, my whole face lit up. I'm like, sure. yeah, I mean, I was so ready to do anything, anything, <laughs> just anything at that point. And, um, so I said, well, what would you tell him? She said, no way. Absolutely no way. I said, forget it. And I hung up on him. Oh. (laughs) So I called him back. Okay, she didn't really hang up on him, but it sounds good. Anyway, it sounds good. (laughs) So I I called him back. And I said, I'm coming. And then came uh, what you'd call a discussion. Now, you know, any guy in Norway knows you don't pick a fight with a Viking girl. You just don't. 
Oh no, that's a da- it's a that's a dangerous thing to do. But um, we discussed, and you know, at that time she was commuting. We were we were living up in the Sierra foothills. We'd moved out of the Bay Area about a year before. She was commuting uh, on Monday, three and a half hours down to the Bay Area, and then back on Friday. So I didn't see her all week long, which was hard. I was doing this awful boiler room job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just burnt and frazzled and stressed. And it, it was a, it was a really, it was a really tough time. It was a really tough time. And, uh, so I said, you know, here's, here's an opportunity for us to do something, not only in the same place that we're not living in two separate households all week long and, and trying to make it work. Yeah. We can actually do something together, build something together. And, I remember things where at the time, you know, I mean, you've heard the expression lead follower, get out of the way. Yep. Yep. And I said, you and I, we, 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 uh, we think like leaders, but act like followers and we're only getting in our own way. Ah, yeah. I said, you know, we, we need to, we need to make a choice here. Here's an opportunity that most people would pass up. They'd make a million excuses why this is not possible. Oh, but the kids are in school. Well, we didn't have kids, so that wasn't a non-issue. But, you know, most normal families would think that way. Oh, the kids are in school. I mean, it's a new country. i got to learn a new language. we got to sell the house. we got to move all our stuff. I mean, it's an incredible long list of things that, that most people would put up as barriers to doing. Yeah, people have a tendency to do that. No matter how much they think that the end result will satisfy them and put them in a better place, they will list up all of these things, these these tasks, these steps that are necessary mm-hmm. to get there. They'll put that in front of them and create their own hindrance. It's in, quite, indeed. Quite, quite often. Well, certainly. I think it's human nature. And, and, and you know, honestly, I, I'm no different. And the older I get, the more tendency I have to do that. And I think we're all like that. Um, but at that time, I was I was so incredibly ready to do something else. The time anything. was right. Yeah. The time was right. And, well, I mean, this is exciting. I mean, we, sure. we, go, to, we go to Norway. We give this a go. We, we, uh, well, you were also in a position of discomfort because, I believe, you know, you said a second ago that the older you get, the more likely you are to, to, to list up those hindrances, those self-made hindrances to keep you from taking action. But I think that comes from a position of comfort. We enjoy our comfort and to stretch ourselves out to a new goal is going to disrupt that comfort. Mm-hmm. But when you're already in a state of discomfort, you know, you, you, you have this boiler room job. I'm real curious about what that is, but, <laughs> but you have this boiler room job and you're in, and you're in a condition of discomfort. Now, those hindrances are, in fact, smaller to the naked eye because you want to do whatever it takes to make your situation better. So there, there, it's human nature to put those hindrances in front of ourselves, but it's also human nature to fight for a better situation. I indeed. Think, I think. In, indeed, indeed. And so, um, you know, we, we discussed and we discussed and my wife got the numbers from the business and, you know, okay, it's, it's doing okay. I mean, there is some potential here. Yeah. And uh, so in, in darkest January, she hops on a plane, flies to Norway. Not the best time of year to visit Flom. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's beautiful here, but it's, it's dark and cold. It's brutal. It's brutal. <laughs> and um, by the time she'd left, she'd signed a contract and uh, we were going to take over that business. And it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a massive leap of faith. We decided we'd give it five years and see how it went. Okay, yeah. 
And uh, she and I had two very different experiences oh, as, in, the, in, the, in the start. So, you know, th- this is going back to what you're saying, you know, about, about, you know, my wife, also your wife being exchange students, you know, my wife being a university student and then working and living in, in California. Uh, she was exotic. It was, it was an exciting place to be, you know, access to everything all the time and, you know, so forth and so on. And coming back to Norway, suddenly I was exotic, you know, and I, I, I made a concerted effort from day one to learn the language as quickly and as well as I could. That is key to success in Norway. How long did it take you before you were able to converse with people? I, I could have a basic conversation in six months. I was entirely conversational a year and completely fluent in two. Good, good. Um, it did, you know, I, my writing, it's taken longer to get better. And, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, living, living here in Western Norway, it's all dialect and uh, which is, is fantastic. It, and it, it makes me that much more exotic. I love to go to Oslo and, 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 and confuse, uh, confuse the Norwegians. Hey, to, try, to, try being a black guy. Speaking a combination of the Finnmark di- dialect, Nynorsk, uh, and that Hollingdal Helbillis stuff. That's that's I, I speak like a mishmash of all of that. So give that a try for being exotic and for 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 having people kind of you know do a double take when you start talking. I'm, I'm not even going to try and compete with that. <laughs> I think I got you beat there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you do. But isn't it such but, a beautiful language? I think it's so cool that I can speak it. I, I am so proud of being able to speak Norwegian because to me it's this beautiful, musical, melodic language, and it's just cool to be able to talk. Yeah, I, I kind of wish the uh, I kind of wish the dictionary was was uh, was more than half an inch thick. Uh, it, it, you know, it's it, it, that on one hand you can learn learn tons of vocabulary in a hurry because there's not so much to learn. But on on the other hand, you know the the uh, the the, the depth and breadth of well, expressing yeah. oneself is quite different. Yeah, there are some challenges when it comes to express. You know, that's why. Uh, for all the songwriting that I do for other artists, I will never write any song for any any lyrics for anyone in Norwegian because it's just it's too limiting. So all of my song lyrics are in English. I, I perform my stand up in English as well. I just can't express myself uh, with humor the way I want to if I'm going to try it in Norwegian. So mm-hmm. I do those things in English. My day to day, you know, out and about when I'm speaking with other people, I'm speaking Norwegian. But when I'm doing musical things or, 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 or comedy things. It has to be in English. You just can't, mm. you just can't express myself. Just can't yeah. do it. Well, and that's, that's of course a tough one, you know? So, and I, I, I spend most of my time speaking Norwegian. I speak English with my wife at home, but it, so do it, I, so do I in a, in a bit, in a business connection, we only speak Norwegian. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it just depends who, who I'm dealing with. You know, my, yeah. I have a very international crew at work. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, it, it ends up being a mix. But, uh, yeah, that was super important to me. It was super important to me to learn the language as quickly as possible. And, you know, yeah, I was suddenly the exotic guy. It's like new culture, new food, new everything, running this business. And But your wife had a little bit of a tougher experience. How so? She did. So, you know, we both know that, that, uh, that the labor situation in the U.S. versus Norway is very different. Uh, California has what's called at-will employment. That means your employer decides that you're no longer needed and you're gone. Okay. doesn't really have to have a great reason other than downsizing. 
And you have this massive ebb and flow. Silicon Valley was especially bad about this, where these huge tech companies are, are fighting over the best talent and they're hiring, you know, a thousand more people than they need wow. to make sure that their competitor doesn't get the great talent because, hey, they're going to keep growing and keep growing. I see. And, th- and then, you know, the dot bomb hits and, uh, oof. We don't yeah. need these thousand people. Right. You're gone, yeah. and suddenly the market's flooded because every country, every company is doing the same thing. So, um, uh, you know, she came from a Norway that was, you know, 15 years prior, mm. and, and business in Norway was different 15 years prior to us us coming here and going to the U.S., where you know, I, I would argue that something somewhere in between would be good. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, in, in Norway to, to simplify this without going too deep into it, but to simplify it in Norway, the employee has all the power and in the U S the employer has all the power. And that's why, for example, unions are strong in the U S whereas unions think they need to be strong in, in Norway. And I would argue that they don't, you know, but most employers are actually quite ethical and the employee has all the power anyway. Um, so somewhere in between there would be nice. Yeah, but it's, a, it's I, a rough. Uh, it's a rough situation here in Norway. For you know, I, I can identify with that. Um, at one point, I owned three gyms, and then of course I had my employees, and it was. I, I tied my brain in knots trying to deal with that as an employer, and adjusting my American mindset when it comes to employment, uh, adjusting that mindset to the Norwegian reality. <laughs> so yes, yeah, something in between the freedoms of Norway and the restrictions of the United States, there should be some kind of middle ground. But unfortunately, here we are, and uh, the worker has—I don't know—I shouldn't say unfortunately. It's great. It's great that workers are protected it, here in Norway. It's absolutely, it and is, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's not. But but, uh, but it, it was a challenge, I'm sure, um, for for your wife who was used to 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 the American system of employment. I get that. Yeah. Let, let me just say that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying the Norwegian system is bad by any stretch. No, no and it's not, but it is an adjustment to make. Yeah. I mean, people are, people are taken care of and, sure. you know, especially now we see with what's happened with the pandemic. Yes. Boy, I would, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I would not point. want to be anywhere else. No, this is the perfect place to be. Yeah. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, but you know, the, the, the flip side of that is that things have to get really, really bad at work. I mean, where you've got, you know, if you have, if you've got 20 people on your team and you've got one that is causing so much disruption and the, the formalities one must go through to say, hey, you know what, this isn't yeah, working out, yeah. it, uh, it, it's, it's really enormous. I mean, it you, is. You, you know, if, 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 one of you, if you have a kitchen and one of your chefs pulls a knife on somebody else, then that, that might be enough. But <laughs> maybe not. So my wife came, came back after, after, you know, being a business leader in the U S and, uh, and gets to Norway and, you know, stepped in it a number of times, you know, and it was, uh, it was, it was a bumpy ride because suddenly she, she was used to dealing with, you know, Silicon Valley and people who are free thinking and energetic and have all these ideas and they want to build something together and coming into a small environment where people talk behind each other's backs. And it's just, altogether too much gossip and people are so stubborn and set in their ways. And, and, you know, 
you know, it, it, it was really tough on her and she, she ended up in, you know, some situations um, due to employment law and, and, and getting used to that. So really for the first couple of years, she was ready to just pack her bags yeah. anytime and, yeah. and, and leave. I, I don't know how many times I had to, had to talk her out of pulling out the suitcase. So, so while she's going through this, what was your, what was your experience? You know, was she in charge of personnel while you were more in charge of the practical brewing or, or how did you guys divide the work? So, so we didn't move here to start a brewery. Um, we, we came here and we That's bought, right, it was a restaurant. It was a restaurant. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we came here and we bought really a, a cafe, a very large cafe that, you know, at that time as now had, you know, yeah. 300 seats inside and 300 seats outside. And, um, and yeah, so they didn't only, start. Only, so you didn't start out with, as, as a brewery. We're, we're, so, no, but, no. But, but, but how, uh, when, you, when you first got here, how did the two of you divide the work? What did she do and what did you do? Yeah, so um, to, to finish saying, you know, what the business was when we took over, there were only eight hotel rooms and 600 seats for people to sit down and eat. And there's just this myriad of food offerings and this kind of thing. Um, and we knew we needed to build a bigger hotel. Oh. So that was that was a discussion already before we got here, as well as possibly building some kind of Viking pub. And um, my wife came in as administrative director, and there was no hierarchy in place. Like no. everybody just did everything, yeah. and it was in, in the in the summertime, and you're trying to feed fifteen hundred people a day, and it's total chaos. And so, uh, so she came in administrative director of course she had the language and the business background i come in i don't speak the language and so what do you do i mean i wash dishes i flip burgers i was mr fix it i'm a handy guy so i got out the tools and i ran around fixing stuff you know 15 hours a day and um as i started to learn the language you know it got easier and i got to do more things but you know i was so ready to do anything that hey sure you know, dishes have a beginning and a middle and an end, and they're my dishes. <laughs> I was going to say more. it's your, it's your, it's your thing now. So exactly. wash, washing dishes, yeah, you you do that with a little bit of a different attitude. You do, yeah. and you know, when they're your dishes, the more of them are dirty, <laughs> the more people came to eat, and the more money you're making, right? So that's that, that's uh, the 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 deeper the stack of dishes, the the better you're doing. So there you go. Uh, there you go. Really satisfying in that way. So okay, you know what? Um, I had, I had tremendous perspective. Um, I, I had gone from a music education to Silicon Valley or to bike mechanic to Silicon Valley consultant, had a lot of success and then not, and then some jobs that were unmentionably bad. I had perspective. Yeah. I got to Norway and I was like, you know what? I need to go here and be open-minded. Uh, no job is beneath me. Whatever crap I got to shovel, I'm going to shovel it. Because this is a path to, to something better. And uh, my wife had to deal with all the personnel issues, all the administration. Uh, yeah, we, we, we had quite a, a, quite a few issues at the start, um, in, including uh, one of the previous owners that didn't want to sell. And oh. we ended up being, being sued privately and sued as a business. Oh. So, you know, it was kind of a, a year and a half of 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 legal battles and that is not a cozy start. (laughs) No, it's not a cozy start. And you know, while people here are very, very friendly in our community, we're an hour long community, people are super friendly, super nice, but you know, there's no housing. 
it was impossible to find a place to live. You know, we, we, we lived in our smallest hotel room for, uh, oh. for the first, first 90 days. And if, if there were too many guests, we got booted out and go stay with, with uh, my oh, wife's mom. Wow. I mean, it was, you know, it was just kind of wild. So it, everything, my wife felt like, you know, I've worked so hard in my life to come here and really be, uh, be treated like the big bad wolf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the employees had unionized because the previous owners had said, Oh, well, they're coming from America. They're going to, they're going to run you into the ground and they're going to treat you badly. And, you know, so oh, it took, why would they sabotage for you like that? Oh, well, I don't know, but it, it took, it took years to build trust and respect and they, to make it, you know, to get to the point where things move more smoothly. And so, you know, to, to, to put it in perspective, it's, it's, it's gone well over that time, but, you know, we, we took over a business that had something like 15 employees now in the summer or 120, um, the whole, the whole different situation. There's actually middle management and a structure and, um, yeah, but it took time. So my wife was miserable for the first couple of years. It wasn't until we really started to, to plan, to, uh, to, she's a, she's a project person. She loves a project. And we started to plan how we could expand and grow that, um, that things started to get a lot better for her. Um, as I mentioned, we, we knew that eight hotel rooms wasn't going to cut it. Uh, we, we knew we needed to build a bigger hotel and, uh, and we, we needed, uh, some kind of entertainment place, a pub. And we discussed a Viking pub. Yeah. And, about this time, um, how long have you been in Norway, by the way? I've been here since 2002, the 5th of June, 2002. Okay. So you, you remember going to Wien Monopole when it, was, uh, when it wasn't a store. You had to take a number, stand in line, go to the counter, and ask for what you want. I'm familiar with the process, but I will say this. I've never been in Wien Monopole. I don't drink. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's a good reason not to go that's in Monopole. That's a good Monopole. reason not to go in. For, for, uh, so, for my, Ameri- my non Norwegian listeners, Vin Monopole is uh, the corner liquor store <laughs> here in Norway. That's it's, where you're, it's, it's not just that, it's the state run liquor store. It's the state run corner liquor store. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you, you, you can't buy anything over 4.7% alcohol uh, in the groceries. So all that goes to, to this state run entity, which has. Yeah, you know, sort of banker's hours and yeah. very, very limited and everything else. Yeah. Um, going back to the time when you got here and I got here, uh, the Monopole wasn't, it wasn't like a store where you walk in, you see what you want, you take it off the shelf and you go pay for it. Um, my nearest Monopole is an hour drive one way. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> still. Wow. And at that time, it was in the basement of, a, of this concrete building that looked like it was uh it was built in the war to withstand the war uh you know with sort of this this you know cracked nasty old tile on the floor and it was just you know you went in this this basement it was just dismal it was depressing and go there you'd have to take a number from a machine like you're going to get your prescription at the at the uh pharmacy and then you go up to the counter and you had to ask them for specifically what you wanted. Yeah. You needed to know what you actually wanted. You couldn't browse, right? Well, anyway, this first summer we're here, um, there's not that one, but another uh, Vimonopole, which is an hour the other direction. It actually went over to this, this store concept. And I walk in there and I make a beeline for the, for the beer section. 
and I see these great big tall half liter bottles, the beautiful uh, orange uh, on it, you know, the the, uh, the label for for Nug Nug, and I see it says pale ale. And I think, well, okay, pale ale can mean different things to different people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, most literally, pale, it's light, and ale, it's, it's, a, it's a top fermented beer. And both those things may not be true. Maybe this is just some great big brewery yeah. that makes something that they're trying to make look like. Yeah, some kind of gimmick. Seriously. A hand product. Yeah. And this, this, is, this, is, this is very common in the U.S. We have what are called craft beers and then crafty beers. And the crafty ones are made by the big breweries to look like they're made by a small brewery. So I thought, well, I could be getting had here, but I bought two expensive half-liter bottles, and I went home and I cracked one open and stuck my nose in the glass and <laughs> realized that this was the real thing. Yeah, yeah. And in in the matter of of seconds, it dawned on me that a I was actually going to survive this crazy trip to Norway, you know, <laughs> and b it's possible to start a little craft brewery in this country. And it's a concept that barely exists. And that's when the light bulb really went on. And without thinking about it, I turned to my wife. We're sitting out on the balcony on a nice summer evening. I turned to my wife and, and I said, Ed, you know, if we're going to build a pub, it's got to be a pub brewery. Yeah. And my wife, without blinking, said, why not? So simple. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, why not is our is our uh, is our motto uh, for all of our businesses. Well, it's you know, that's just, a good why, why way. Not? That's a good way of living life. I'm, I'm a believer in if, if, a, if a thought falls upon me, I've got to investigate it. And if I if I do that investigation and I still feel good about it, why not? Yeah. You know, you have to do it. Why not? Why not? And that, and that's, and that's driven us ever since. And suddenly I had a whole new purpose in life. Uh, it, it wasn't just that I had escaped a bad situation and come to a new place and, you know, Hey, at least I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a salary and washing dishes and fixing yeah. things. Yeah. Um, that was very satisfying for all the reasons we already talked about. But the next thing was, now I really have a purpose. Now I have a goal. Now I have something to really aim for here. Now you're going to create something on top of this new business that you have. Absolutely. And, and it didn't take long before most of my full-time job was focused on, on research and figuring this out and going to Copenhagen and studying brewing in Danish Oh God, <laughs> you poor we, thing. <laughs> it wasn't, I was, I was in Norway a year and a half and I went to Denmark and started studying brewery and brewing in Danish. For my non-Norwegian listeners, you know, Danish is quite similar to Norwegian, but it's crazy enough to where it is very different. A lifelong born and, and raised Norwegian struggles with understanding Danish. So hats off to you for going through that. <laughs> It was it was a challenge to say the least. It was entertaining. Oh, but, I can uh, imagine. <laughs> it was a great time. You know, yeah. I was I was I was living in Copenhagen for a period of time as an intern at a, at a brewery, and then uh, and then went to school after that. And yeah, how do you and, how do talk me through that process? How do you study 
brewer? I mean, what was it an actual school or did you get some sort of agreement with another business that they were going to take you on and, and, and teach you the, show you the ropes? How did that work? Yeah. So um, next door to Carlsberg in Copenhagen is the Scandinavian school of brewing. Oh, there is a school. Okay. Yeah. So, so really most of the brewmasters, pretty much all the brewmasters in Norway, but anyway, maybe not all, but most of them uh, have studied at, at Scandinavian school okay. of brewing or they've studied elsewhere in Europe. And so there are, uh, there are many venerable institutions throughout Europe okay. that, that teach brewing. Uh you know, you've, you've got some really tremendous ones in Scotland and in Germany and, uh, and elsewhere. So, uh, so that was no problem. And so I did, uh, I did a, a diploma in brewing, not the full brewmaster uh, education, because that takes years and costs a fortune. But I wanted to make sure I was, I was going into my, my venture with, uh, with a little bit, uh, right. a little bit more experience. And, and to go down there and be an intern, that was the best part. Um, I mean, what I, I, I thought at the time, like, you know, I'm going to take, you know, a, a month or so of my life and I'm going to go live away from Norway. This is going to be a new change after having just come here a year and a half prior and, uh, be away from my wife for a month or so and, and everything else. But I thought, you know, when am I ever going to have the opportunity again to live in Copenhagen? Yeah, and I'm, so th- I'm so thankful I did it because it was, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I got tremendous experience brewing. So at that point, you know, this is, this is 2004, summer of 2004. And we spent three years planning and uh, working on the architecture, the design of, of what the brew pub was going to be, as well as designing what would be our new hotel. Okay. And the original plan was to build both of them at the same time, but due to a shortage in materials, we ended up building them a year apart. So we opened they, the brew are they, pub. Are they physically connected or they're are not they two, phys- two separate no, buildings? They're not physically connected. And so anyone who knows what a Norwegian stave church looks like, yeah, yeah. Um, our brew pub looks kind of like a Norwegian stave church. Um, in fact, foreign tourists show up and they 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 uh, wonder how long how old the church is. I saw pictures of your place online and I it triggered like a distant memory. And like I told you earlier, I'm quite familiar with uh, the Western part of Norway. My wife and I have driven all over the place out there. And I wonder if I have seen that brewery uh, quite some time ago, many years ago. I don't know how, how long has it been up? Well, we, we, uh, we opened the brew pub in 2007. So it'll be yeah, 14 years this yeah. year. And I, I want to say that I have seen your building before, which is kind of ironic. Who, who would have ever thought that you and I would be talking here today? Yeah. <laughs> small, small world. Small so we opened, we opened the brew pub in 07. We opened the hotel a year later in 2008. Um, you know, now we're 41 rooms instead of eight. And, you know, you've got the brew pub and, and, uh, and its own kitchen and everything else. And um, so it was, Suddenly I had this purpose and, you know, I was in the start, the only brewer, the only employee in the brewery. And I, I literally had to drop absolutely everything I had previously done in the business. And it was, it was truly 15 hour days, seven days a yeah. week yeah. for years, for years. And, uh, how do you make you know, it through that? How do you, how do you get, well, through that? I, I understand that it's your business, um, and, and you want to do it. But how do you physically do that? It's gotta, how do you, it's how do you got, survive that? It, it's got to be done. And when you're when you're intensely passionate about something, um, 
it's amazing how much energy you can find. Amen. That's now that, that energy doesn't, that energy doesn't last forever. You know, to be fair, at, at some point you've got to find some balance in life. And it took me, it took me some years before I actually started to find balance. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we were here eight years with, with, uh, without having balance in, in our lives before we started to find it. There's so many things that you're saying that I can identify with. And that whole thing about, um, you know, the energy, the adrenaline, the passion for your project, for, for your business, that can keep you going. It kept me going for a long time. I, I ran three gyms in northern Norway that were, well, the one was about four and a half hours away from where I lived. The other one was an hour and a half or about an hour and 15 minutes away from where I lived. And the other one was a half hour away from, so it was a lot of traveling, but I loved it. Even though over those years, and I think it was like over a seven, eight, seven and a half year period, I could feel myself getting weaker, physically weaker mm. because you, you just, you keep pushing yourself. You keep, you keep, if I could do that over again, I would have, portioned it out. I would have maybe worked those, you know, 15 hour work days for a month and then take maybe, you know, five days off. And, and you can do that when you own your own business, you can do that, but very few people do it. You, you, just, can't, you, you, get, you get wrapped up in a passion. You get wrapped up. You're, you're on that roller coaster, man. And you just don't want to jump off. Yeah. In some businesses, some industries, yeah, maybe you, you can do that, but you really at the start when you're building something, mostly you can't. It's just got, it's just, it's just got to get done. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not five days off, but you know, work, work hard, you know, run yourself into the ground for a month, but then take a couple, three days off. You can do it. You can, I say you can, <laughs> well, I should have, or I'll I, say I, this. I should, I should have done it. I can, sp I'll speak for myself. I should have done it. Cause in the end I got burnt out. In the end, I ended up selling everything, yeah. and that's why we live down south now. We we sold everything, sold our house, sold the businesses, and came down and came down here because it was just too much. I was burnt out. I wasn't seeing uh, Snoopy or the kids, and uh, I just had to make that change. But you you obviously didn't get to that point. You obviously found a solution, or you managed to deal with the burnout. So I. You know, I, I I didn't feel burnt out then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, definitely, definitely not. And you I'm, know, I'm a chump, I guess. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's I mean, it's true. You you work enough, you're eventually going to hit the wall. And I had uh, I had I had tons of energy for it, and we continued to grow. And you know, it's it's a lot of fun. Like in 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 2006, that was the last year that that we had. Uh, you know, what you would say is like normal pilsner on tap in our cafe that we bought in from another supplier. And, uh, I gave that supplier the boot and said, starting a brew pub. So starting, uh, starting now we're only going to have our own beer. And they laughed and thought that was hilarious. And, uh, you know, <laughs> said good luck and went uh, out the door laughing. Yeah. And, um, well now you've it, been, now you've been Norway's best, um, what do you call it? Brew brewery pub, uh, three years in a row. Wasn't it, uh, tw yeah, 2008, nine and 10. That was a, a pretty informal, uh, informal award, but it was nice while it lasted. And then they figured out that, well, you know, it was it was kind of hard to keep up because we would sort of win every year. You know, one, our brew pub is spectacular, but um, yeah, they, they ultimately they just stopped doing the award. That's a long time ago now. Okay. I mean, I've won beer of the year. I've got you know something like twenty. 
two or three international medals from the Australian International Beer Awards. I've got medals from Germany. We've won Best in Packaging Awards in the UK. Uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, that that's all well and good, but... Um, well, it helps get your name out there. Um, uh, I mean, it may be just a bunch of flash and, and it may, may, may just be some kind of diploma on the wall, but there is a statement in that, you know. There's a verification. There is a uh, justification of all the hard work in those kind of recognitions. Am I right? Yeah, it, it's certainly it's a nice it's an, it's a nice pat on the back, but uh, words don't pay the bills. No, and, only cold and, hard cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what's what's exciting, you know, and and what what led to those crazy days, as in, in especially in the start, is that uh, you know 2006 last year we had uh, beer that we bought in from other suppliers. Uh, you know, we sold less than 9,000 liters of beer. And I thought, well, we're going to start this brew pub. We're going to have a variety because for me, it's all about variety. Sure. You know, and, you know, you not being a drinker, you maybe not have experienced this, but, but you know, if, if we want to go back, it's, it's still this way in some pubs, but if, especially if we go back 15 plus years, a Norwegian walks into a bar and wants a beer and just says half liter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sorry, but out of all the myriad of beer styles in the world, none of them are called half liter. Right. That's a size. What do you want? A half liter of, you know, rat poison, motor oil? Because I don't know about you, but whatever it is that I'm going to eat and drink. I want to know what it is. I'm I want to tell know what you, it yeah. is. And I want, I want to spe- specify what it is. Right. And, and, you know, human nature, we want to be able to choose. We want to choose what, you know, what color we wear or what car we drive or what mobile telephone we buy or, you know, insert object here. And we want to make choices ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I often ask groups that come to visit the brew pub and I'm showing them around and, and, uh, you know, I'm just curious if anybody here has ever gone to a restaurant and and the waiter or waitress comes out and presents the menu and tells you the specials for the day and everything else. And you just take the menu and you slam it shut and slam it down on the table and you just say food. <laughs> yeah. You and know? everybody sort of sort of looks around yeah. bewildered. Some yeah. of them get where I'm going. Yep. And and. You know, I said, well, what? Nobody's done that? Because I'm really surprised. I'm sure every single one of you has gone into a pub and you've just said beer. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, Norm. And what what did you get? What did you get? You got a half liter of beer. Yeah. You don't care what it is or who made it or what it tastes like. You just want to get drunk. Yeah. You know what? I'm about about variety and my brew pub is going to have varieties. Okay. First year, 15,000 liters, that's my goal. I'm going to have lots of different beers on tap, or at least as many as I can come up with, you know, that I can keep on. So we started out with five beers, uh, which wasn't many, but at a massive variety compared to what, what mm. was normal. I decided not to have Pilsner. I, ref- I refused, actually, the first 12 years to Why? make a Pilsner. Why? Well, because, uh, because Ola Norwegian, he comes into your pub and he says, Pils. Yeah, yeah. And if you've got one, you can stand there till you're blue in the face. Yes, sir, but we have this wonderful Blondale, and it's got a little bit of citrus in the flavor, and it's really great with seafoods, and similar to that Pilsner you like, or we have this Amber Ale, and it's red and caramel in flavor, and it goes really well with, you know, cured meats and cheeses, and then we have this and we have that. You can tell him all about these things until you're ready to pass out, and at the end he's going to say, no, I want the thing I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. 
And so by refusing to even put a Pilsner on, uh, Mr. Norwegian, he's got to pick. Yeah. He's got to choose one of my other beers. And then he comes back after he's consumed it and he goes, wow, that was really good. Suddenly, suddenly he's just taken a little step over the yeah. threshold. Already, next time he tries something else. Already right there, they have a different drinking experience, something that they're not going to find in um, uh, the, the average Norwegian pub. Already you've put something different into, uh, into your product. Now, mm-hmm. how, how much of your American identity is in your business? We do things different. We, we're Americans. We do things different. I did things differently when I was running my gyms. People knew this was an American-style gym. Mm-hmm. How does that reflect or does it reflect itself in your business? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, because, you know, the old, the old saying is go with what you know. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up and cut my teeth on – American craft beer, you know, American style IPAs with lots of hop aroma and hop flavor and and so on and so forth. Um, So it was entirely natural for me to produce those beer styles that I was familiar with. Now we've expanded our portfolio greatly since then, but that's, um, that's where it started. And Sometimes I get questions from, from uh, local homebrewers, uh, you know, who really make the traditional farm brew. Yeah. And they're like, hey, why don't, why, don't you, uh, why don't you make some traditional malt beer, this, you know, like, like we do on, on the farm? That'd be really cool if, if, if Aggie would do that. I said, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that, except that it wouldn't really be honest. It's the same reason that at least as of now, 17 years in, I, I don't own a Norwegian national costume. I'm not saying I won't <laughs> in the future. Um, I've applied for citizenship, so maybe someday I'll well, actually. Have, you, have you done that? How long ago uh, did you start that process? Well, let's see. You know, I had to do all the language exams and all that kind of stuff, which I sailed through. And um, so that was a year ago. Yeah. I applied in February, then COVID hit, so I couldn't deliver my documents. So I delivered those in July, and they're saying 10 months processing. So I don't know. Maybe by May or June, I'll get an answer. Now, you're going to keep your American passport, though, right? For now. For now, yeah. Should we talk but about that's, that? That's, that's, <laughs> another, that's another podcast. That's another podcast episode. Actually, when uh, I, I overslept today, my plan was to do a solo. I have this thing called Solo Saturday. I was going to do a solo episode and just unload my thoughts and feelings about what's been happening back home. It's just crazy. So yeah, maybe we'll talk about that on another episode, but I, I just, I, I, you, you, you perked my, my curiosity when you said you, you uh, applied for Norwegian citizenship because mm-hmm. I'm going to do that as well. Uh, my plan for now also is to keep my American citizenship, but I will be applying for Norwegian mm-hmm. citizenship. I could, I really, I could talk to you for an hour about everything I've been through as a foreign business owner and reporting of taxes and so forth. You know what? I mean, and that, and that is going to be another podcast episode too, because I have a lot of uh, personal experience and, and strong feelings about that as well. You know, being a, bus- not- being a business owner myself, let's just say, let's just tell the listeners, it's not easy being an American business owner in Norway, the tax situation I mean, in, a, in a foreign, in a foreign country, in, 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 a, in a foreign country in general, if you're outside yes. of the U S it's, it, that's the part that makes it difficult. The, the tax, the taxation is just, it's, it's brutal. 
It's brutal well, even, to say that. Let's just say yeah, it that way. Yeah, it, it is. Even even for a normal working wage earner um, in in a country that isn't the U.S., the reporting requirements that that person has to go through are substantially worse than a homeland America. It's a ridiculous situation. It's absolutely yeah. ridiculous and totally unnecessary, and it does not generate any extra revenue for the United States. I would say, in fact, that it costs the IRS because of the, all of the processing that they have to do because there is so much extra uh, uh, paperwork, if you will, um, for, for people in our situation, American expats. Yeah. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's it, totally asinine. No, it, 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 it's true. And to put this in perspective and talk about paperwork, um, my tax return this year was 105 pages long and it must be printed only on one side of the paper. And I have to send a paper copy signed. Sick. So, uh, oh, yeah. sickening, sickening. So anyway, that's, that's, that's let's, let's move on because I get I get so mad when I think of <laughs> moving along back to we, we back. can we can do the uh, <laughs> we can do the the politics and unfair taxation podcast another day. Check out my but solo episode. I'm going to do it now when we're finished. So that will be coming out today and I'm going to unload a little bit. So excellent. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. So in, in, in any event, uh, you know, we, we've, we've had quite an adventure. Now, starting up the brewery, as I said, I thought we'd sell 15,000 liters of beer the first year. It was 15,000 around about the first month. Uh, and that's why I just had to work, you know, day and night to, to make it happen. And that so, is just so beautiful to hear. It was a great start. But I, I mean, I... <sighs> I knew that it was going to be, I really felt that it would be a success. But you and probably were shocked that it, that it happened so fast, that you met that 15,000 goal, uh, leader goal already the first month. That had to be a shock. Yeah, or did you know? And or did you know what, it was going to be that? I, I was sort of thinking about like, you know, what we'd sell in a year yeah. and what yeah. I would need of raw materials to do that and everything else. But uh, I, I didn't. I didn't think far enough ahead to realize that, you know, really all that consumption is happening uh, in May through September and really mostly June, July, August. Okay. And uh, it was, it was, it was just wild. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we did uh, 41,000 liters that year and, and, and oh, just grew, grew and grew and grew from there. So, you know, we are one of the, if not the biggest craft brand in Norwegian grocery. Uh, we've had, we have a much bigger focus on grocery than the wine monopoly and, um, and a smaller focus than on wine monopoly and, and restaurants. So, um, so you'll find us on, on grocery store shelves and in, in several thousand stores. That's just and, beautiful. Beautiful. And the hotel, the hotel also was, was, uh, was a huge success. You know, we, we calculated sort of how many, how many, they're called guest nights, how many basically guest times nights you need in order to make it work. And we, we vastly exceeded that. So the, you know, the, the top line for the, for the company uh, is 10 times what it was uh, when, when we took over. But of course we've invested heavily. We've built a group pub, we've built a hotel, we've renovated and renovated and renovated again. And, um, and of course now COVID is, uh, is, is having a massive effect. Was there any point maybe in the beginning, uh, did you feel the need to bring on any outside investors or is this just you and Aude, your wife? My, uh, in, in the beginning, it was my wife and I and, uh, and her brother. Um, they were owning a third share each. Mm. And uh, we brought in our favorite investor, the bank. 
and uh, the local bank. And then when we outgrew them, uh, we went to bigger financial institutions. And that uh, that works great. As long as you can pay your debts, you're golden. Did, did, did you uh, find that process of uh, making a deal with the bank easy or was there any humps in the road you know i'm th- and i'm thinking about it's here's a situation where your, your wife is norwegian so that probably caused them to relax a little bit but she's a norwegian who had been gone out of the country for years and you are obviously a foreigner how how how, how did that go what what kind, did you did you meet any resistance from the bank or skepticism from the bank no really uh the the beauty of being in a small town people know each other um, my brother-in-law is very successful. Uh, so that certainly helped that, uh, you know, immediately the bank already knew him. Um, and so there, there was already a relationship there. You know. That is so good to hear because I hear other, um, other Americans here in Norway who have tried to put something together and a common thread is that they meet enormous challenge and resistance from banks. They just Mm. don't want to loan them money. That wasn't my experience. When I started my gyms, I actually had uh, worked myself up over several days. I had worked out a speech, you know, a spiel, a pitch, if you will, to the bank. Um, And I think I got out two sentences and the guy at the bank uh, on Charve, uh, at Sparbank N on Charve, he interrupted me and says, how much do you need? And I'm like, oh my God, is it that easy? Mm. But, but that is a, that's the unusual experience. A lot of us meet a lot of resistance from banks. Well, I'm not surprised. You, you need to remember another thing, too, is that the financial crisis of 2008 vastly changed banking. And so even the local small town bank, you know, even after we built the business up and were proving that we were successful and profitable and things were really working. Yeah it was a much bigger struggle for them to come up with the, with the kind of money we needed. Yeah. Um, to I, got my, I got my financing in 2007. So the timing was good. The timing was good. So, you know, we, we, we went already in 2002, three, yeah. uh, no, sorry, 2004, five, probably 2005, uh, initially. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, a combination of things, small town bank, they knew my brother-in-law well, he was, already very successful. My wife is coming with a business background. She's managed uh, banks in San Francisco. So there's, there's that. And you know, I'm, I'm sort of the wild card. Uh, I I don't think they paraded me out front to put it that way. Stay stay um, home, stay in bed the day we're talking to the bank. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't quite that bad, but anyway, uh, no, it worked and we, we got financed and we were able to build and, good, and good. We, we were able to grow and the, uh, you know, we outgrew, we outgrew the pub brewery immediately. I mean, really immediately because of the, the trying the first, to, that first month you met your year's goal. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just that. It was that I, I couldn't keep up. Okay. And okay. I realized that I had, I had, I had thought the whole time about this cozy little brew pub and, uh, but I had ambitions of growing and distributing and, and bought bottling equipment and things like that. And, so what did you do to adjust then? You, you, you get this, you, you get bombarded with, with uh, business, with revenue, uh, with profit that first month. How do you adjust? What, what practical things did you have to do to adjust to that? Well, the thing is you can, you, you know, you can't rush beer along uh, <laughs> the fermentation process takes the time it takes and you can only brew as much as you have tanks for. And so when you run out of tanks, you're, uh, you're at a standstill. So would you so do af- buy more tanks? Af- well, I only had space for one. 
Okay. So, so I, 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 our, our brew system in the pub is a thousand liters. And, uh, so I bought a 3000 liter tank that's super tall and we managed to shoehorn it into the, into the <laughs> pub brewery. And that helped, of course, that was after the first year. And after the second year, I realized, you know what? Hey, I'm toast. There's no way I can produce enough. And we've started, we actually started to distribute bottles and we were just about to go into grocery and so I uh, had to contract brew our bottled beer at another brewery for a period of time. Uh, we did that for two years. And, uh, and at that point, it built the market enough without having the capital investment. Uh, it built the market enough to go to the ba- back to the bank and say, okay, now, uh, now we're ready to bring all our production back to Flom. Um, we need to build a new brewery and that's going to create jobs. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. They, they financed us. We built the brewery and warehouse. We had way more capacity and proper packaging equipment and, uh, and we started to grow. And, uh, how many employees do you have at the time? So as of today, as of today, how many do you have? As of today, we are, uh, we're nine people, um, and about, yeah, that, that equates to about oh, almost eight full-time. So we've okay. got some, some that, that work, for example, only in the summer season and, and others that, that, uh, that work a, a reduced schedule. But, um, yeah, we were, we were, before the pandemic, we were at 10 full-time. Okay. And we've, uh, we've restructured a little bit, but, uh, but we're still a total of nine on the payroll. How hard has COVID, the whole COVID-19 situation affected your business? So we need to look at the business as two separate entities. Uh, The brewery as a a production unit that sells to Norwegian grocery, restaurants, bars, uh, and and the wine monopoly. And then everything else, which would be a cafe, restaurant, hotel, brew pub. Yeah. Um, Before Christmas... Well, backing up to March, when when we basically went on somewhat of a lockdown, it's hard to call it lockdown compared to what other countries have experienced. Yeah. But in any event, um, we had to close completely. Uh, my wife laid off uh, basically her entire staff, except keeping some sales staff on partially, uh, whereas the brewery trucked along like normal. And because bars and restaurants were closed, people go and buy the beer at the grocery or yeah. at the wine monopoly and take it home. So there's so, still business for you then, yeah. For sure. So so we lost the majority of our volume uh, that was going to our own businesses and our local businesses. And we sell quite a lot of beer, especially in the summer months, to to our own group up. Yeah. Um, luckily, Norwegians stayed home last summer. They decided to do their, their vacation in Norway, and they came to Flom and drank a lot. You know, your, your, your typical Southern European couple, young couple comes and they see the price of beer and they buy a 0.3 glass and split it between them. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Norwegians come and they, they order a round of half liters and then another and then round again. and another round and, then and again. another round. <laughs> so uh, we've, we've never sold so much beer in foam as we did in July last year, okay. <laughs> ever. I mean, it was really, yeah. so that helped make up for it. So all in all, you know, we, we had to cut some staff as well temporarily, do some layoffs. And, um, and now the, uh, the, the hotel, restaurant, cafe side of the business closed before, before Christmas and will yeah. be closed until, 
just before Easter. So that's, that's a big revenue stream that's gone for us, but we've made up for it with grocery and the wine monopoly. So we ended up last year with, with very nearly the same, uh, sales numbers as, um, as 2019. That's good to hear. That's yeah, good but but actually with lower costs, we managed right. to manage to to save some money on on uh, on costs on a number of fronts. Well, congratu- cool. congratulations on navigating through this past year because not not every business is able to do that. So hats off to you. Congratulations. Thanks. I, I really I got to give my wife a lot of credit because she's she's had the hard job. She's she's had she's had to look thirty five to forty people on her staff in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I've got to lay you off. And I don't know when I can take you back again. That's a hard thing to do. That's that's a hard thing to do. These people have families, they have bills to pay. Now, of course, the Norwegian state helps take care of them. So nobody's out in the cold. Right. But still, but it's still, uh, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a good feeling. No. Uh, The upside of that is, you know, you know, we've managed to navigate this thing. She's managed to, to, to get that side of the business through it. Yeah. Uh, still turn a profit at the end of the year and, 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 you know, have enough money in the bank that we'll get through this quiet period and we'll get back to next summer and, and, uh, and have some traffic again. How so. much hands-on are you in the brewing process? Um, are, are you still, are you still down in the pit <laughs> making it happen? Or have you, because of the, the, the growth in your business, have you now had to, um, maybe things are a little bit different now with, uh, you know, with COVID-19, but, uh, taking COVID-19 out of the picture, going back, you know, maybe a year, um, uh, are, are you still hands-on in the brewing process? Are you more of an administrative, uh, overseer? Are you more of a face of the business? How, mm-hmm. how, how, what's your, what's your role like? Yeah. So, so I'm the, I'm the director, right? And that is mostly an administrative role, um, which I can't say makes me super happy. Um, as, as the business grew, you know, when, when we were only two people, um, you know, I still did everything in brewing. When we were three, I still did a bunch of brewing. When we were four, I, I still did a bunch of brewing. When we opened the production brewery, our new facility, you know, to put it in perspective, our brew pub, the actual space for brewing is, is 73 square meters. The, um, the uh, production brewery and warehouse is, uh, is 1,200 square meters. Um, when we moved into that facility and really started focusing on grocery and everything else, my job became much more purely administrative. I see. And while when we were building the place, you know, I was out there doing plumbing and, you know, <laughs> Running wire, washing, washing dishes. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. It's just the, the equivalent of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, I've always been a, a roll up the sleeves and hands on and 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 fix things guy. Yeah. As we grew, I, I amassed a a group of people who are tremendously talented. So I have people in my crew who are educated brewmasters and distillers, microbiologists. These are people with a, a tremendous background and experience and education and their job every day is to come in and make the best possible beer to maintain quality, to have focus on their jobs. I have a packaging manager. His entire job is to focus on putting beer into bottles, cans, kegs. Um, I I have a technician. His job is to make sure that that things get fixed and repaired. And he also helps with packaging. 
uh, I have a logistics manager to make sure that that the uh, product comes in and out. And my head brewer, you know, she's highly educated, highly experienced, very sharp, and very on top of everything that needs to be done. So raw material ordering, all that kind of thing. So that's a lot of what, spinning gears in. This. It's a lot of it's a lot of stuff. What's yeah. what's, what's what's great about the way I've built the organization, not to toot my own horn, but let's just say that Go I've ahead. tried toot, to toot away, toot away. I've Go tried ahead. to, I've tried to build a, a workplace that I myself wish to work in. Ah. I, I try and treat my people with, with respect for their abilities. And I try and give them a lot of autonomy. I let them take ownership of things and do it themselves. There's a couple guys in the crew that come in and brew homebrew on the weekends to test brewing. Okay. And, and, I, I, I cheerfully, uh, you know, finance that and let them do it because it also means we get new products for our, for our portfolio. And, you know, the, the crew, they've put regulations into place, routines, procedures, documented procedures without me having to be deeply involved in the, in those uh, processes. Right. Um, Which is great because they also, they also feel an ownership. So I have, I have people in my crew who have been with me five, six, seven, eight years even. And um, so I, I think that that, that is, is really working. And I, I want to let them come in and have that focus on what they're good at every day. Yeah. Just as soon as I step out into the brewery, I've got 50 other things in my head. I, you know, my uh, product development also, and like, you know, I'm in charge of all the design development what products we're actually going to produce, when we need to produce them, what markets we're producing them for, and all the the logistics involved in actually creating new products is me. In addition to which, as you mentioned earlier, I'm the face of the brewery. So I go out and I, I do some events and, uh, and tours in the brewery and that kind of thing. Although I also have a person who I call my beer guru, and uh, she's out traveling, doing a lot of the tastings and events that I used to okay, do. It yeah. used to be I traveled constantly, and yeah. it made it hard to have the right focus on on the brewery. Yeah. So I, I've not made myself entirely redundant, but I, I've, I'm in really an administrative role. Now, that being said, I have a rule that nothing gets brewed uh, for real production, I'm not talking about tests here, but but not, no real production gets gets done without me seeing the recipe first. That recipe must cross through my fingers. Um, it's extremely important to me that I get a chance to look at it and discuss with the brewer what what they've done, what their thought process was, what's the goal here, what are we trying to do, does it fit the Aggie philosophy? Okay. Yeah. And, and and we discuss, and uh, sometimes that they go out of there with a recipe completely unchanged, and sometimes I make a, a couple of changes that I feel are valid. But it's we have a very very democratic uh, environment yeah. in our brewery. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets a say. Everybody can knock on my door and say, "Boss, you're wrong. There's a better way to do this. And often, this is how we should." How often does that happen? Um, <laughs> you know. I, I'm tempted to say so often I don't notice. Okay. Yeah. I honestly can't. I honestly can't say because everything is an open discussion. It, yeah. It's pretty rare that I just put my foot down and say it's getting done this way. Yeah. Sometimes I have to do that. Sure. Sure. And 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 they seem to have this intuitive ability to know what they should or shouldn't bother me with. Yeah. 
Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, it, it's almost like a family uh, uh, situation. You know, the wife and the kids and the husband, you have this dynamic and you know, uh, I better not tease Snoopy today. She's a little irritated about something. I'll back off a little bit. And, you know, well, I, I never back off. I tease her anyway. But but I would imagine that you have, because you're not a big you know, you don't have dozens or hundreds of employees. You guys are a relatively small group, so you learn each other's personalities. They've learned your personality. They learned uh, what you tolerate, what you don't tolerate. So they probably would stop themselves from doing something questionable before they even do it because they know how the boss is going to respond. Am I right? Yeah. 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 I mean, to put it another way, I, I trust my people completely. I trust them to do a great job every day because they routinely prove that that's, that's what they what, do. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. And so I have com- complete faith in them. I mean, it, at, at, at this, at this point I can disappear for a month of summer vacation and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, granted there's a, there's a pile of things that I should be doing that don't get done in that period of time, but Thing, things run because I've built a, an organization that can run itself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, new product development and, and, and pushing the design process and things like that, none of that gets done while I'm gone. Yeah. Um, so that, that still sits with me. And there's, there's nobody on the team who really wants that job. And they certainly, they certainly don't want to do the administrative part. No. You know, um, it, it at, at the risk of being bleeped on your podcast, you know, there's an American expression that shit rolls downhill. Yeah. Uh, you know, being at the top, you realize that shit rolls uphill. It does roll uphill. Uh, be, because, does. you know, the, the, the day-to-day things, I mean, if you screw up out on the floor, you, you're probably going to hear it from the boss. But when things go really horrendously wrong, ultimately, it's my problem. <laughs> exactly. No, and, and, and there's no beeping here. You should hear some of the cursing that, uh, you know Tiffany, don't you? Tiffany Troutman. I, I know her by name and face on Facebook, but I've never, I've never spoken. Well, to she's, her. she's been on my podcast quite a lot and the cursing and the, 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 the filthy references abound. So shit rolls uphill is not uh, bleep worthy here. Well, I, <laughs> You know, I often say that you you can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy. That's true. So uh, normally I don't censor myself. Today I've behaved. Uh, (laughs) You've been raised well. Listen, yeah, I want to put, put put me and Tiffany on the same podcast, and it might oh. be very very different. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you about your music. Um, are you are, is is guitar your instrument? What do you what do you play? Guitar is my instrument. Okay. I also sing. And um, do you have any yeah, do you have any projects going on? Have you been on any? Um, can your music be found online anywhere? Probably not. Um, you know, I, I really took a huge a huge break from music. And I, I realized pretty, pretty quickly after university that trying to make a living at music was going to be difficult. And I realized I didn't, I didn't really have the drive. I was pretty burnt out after, after my university time. And, you know, I just wanted to play rock and roll and have some fun. And the process of doing that, I met some really great musicians. In particular, I met a bass player, uh, my drummer's brother-in-law actually, who's the single best musician I know and just an unbelievable player and a guy who has struggled to make it in spite of his enormous talent. And I saw that and I'm like, you know, it's disheartening. It's disheartening. It's very disheartening. And, and, and also a reality check, you know what? I, I've got a, 
a, a drive and a, and, a, and, a, and a perspective on life that can probably let me do lots of things and lots of other things than music. So maybe I should follow a different path okay. in, instead and do music as a hobby. And I'm much happier that way. Uh, brewing was a hobby before it became my vocation, and I turned music in, into just a hobby. And f- honestly, for years, I didn't really have time to do much of anything okay. with music. I just, you know, again, working those 12 and 15-hour sure, days, Sure, there's, there was no time or energy to, to pick up a guitar. It was just to fall into bed and get up and do it all over again the next day. Do you get, so the, do you get the chance to plug in and play now these days? Yeah, so it, it's... It's not been that long ago. It's maybe just the last couple of years that I've I've actually started to play more, um, just for my own enjoyment. I actually uh, set up a little a little home studio and uh, starting to actually write some songs again. Oh, that's great! And uh, you know the, the the world of recording uh, and songwriting has has changed drastically. Yes, and, it has. And you know, I, I I was an intern at a recording studio in high school. Oh, cool! And it's, incidentally, my my home brewing buddy Dave from high school. He uh, he went and worked in the homebrew shop where we used to buy our stuff for his high school internship, and I went and worked in a recording studio. Tremendous experience, I loved it. Uh, he ended up getting a PhD in high energy physics and doing nuclear research, and uh, I ended up brewing beer. So, uh, in 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 any event, so yeah, I, I uh, I'm spending more time on it now. I actually have a space at home. Um, I'm actually sitting in my studio now because it doubles as my home office, and uh, it it. it gives me the opportunity to, to have that outlet and create a little bit and Did what you, I'm going to do, do with it. I don't know, but I'm at least going to get some songs down. What's it doing for you uh, to be writing and to be playing again? Has it changed your life in any way? Do you feel any effects? I mean, there, there's a, there's a certain satisfaction at, at the same time. I have, I have other hobbies too. I like to work on old cars. For example, I love to tinker with things and mm-hmm. uh, do stuff around the house and, I find that those kind of projects, especially like working on the car, you know, it's it's something that you can gain the skills to do as you go and yeah, have a yeah. have a good outcome. Uh, being a musician, it's it's much more demanding and it's much more for me disheartening and dissatisfying because you <laughs> feel like, oh, I, I really I really should be better than I am, and. You know, I've squandered so many years that I could have spent being a much better player. Um, but but, is, but can't, can't it be something that's similar to the to, to tinkering on a car that you pick up the skills as you go? Um, those for, skills are much more hard won. They're much more hard won, and they point. require tremendous dedication. And so you know, now I've started actually writing songs again, and uh, and that's fun. I can actually, you know, now you've got really a band in a box. You've got just, oh yeah access to just just tremendous tools that yeah. uh, that simply didn't exist when I was studying music and uh, so it, you I can create things that are enormously satisfying to to create but uh, to sit down and become a better player that's that's another discipline and something you know I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time on as well but uh, it's always to put it this way I feel like it's always just not enough <laughs> and it, it, I, I can't. I you're, can't you're drop a perfectionist. It. You're a perfectionist, uh, and, you're, and, you're, and you're too hard on yourself. I am a ninety-six percent perfectionist, yeah. which means that I understand that achieving anything better than ninety-six percent is impossible. But uh, less than ninety-six percent is often hard to accept. But it's <laughs> in, in in terms of uh, in terms of music. There's there's this feeling for me that that it's always just 
a bit out of reach and it's, huh. you know, oh, I'd like to spend time on that. But I also want to tinker and I also have a business to run. Yeah. And I also, to have balance in my life, need to take time away from all of those things and actually just have time that is time away. Yes. Or I'm yeah. not writing music and yeah. I'm not running a business and I'm not fixing something and, or I'm not working my way through the honey do list. For me, music is so therapeutic. Um, I can't wait later on this afternoon. I'm going to lay a bass track down. A friend of mine uh, is doing some recording and he, uh, I can't go into, I, I could go into the studio, but I'm being careful with COVID and all that. So I'll just play a bass, uh, play a bass line here, uh, in my studio and then send it to him. And I can't wait to do that. The, uh, the, the, the therapeutic effects of recording and, and, and performing and writing and stuff. It, I, I don't know what I would do without it. So every, every chance I get, I, uh, although the writing process has kind of stopped up, um, when my son passed, uh, in 2019, something happened and I can't seem to get, get uh, I mean, I've written, uh, but I can't write like I want to. There's, you know, too much going on in my head about his, his passing. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, to balance that, I've gotten a couple of gigs uh, performing, you know, playing some instruments for, for other people. So, mm -hmm. so it, it, it balances out, but the therapeutic effect of it is what keeps me going. I don't know who I would be if I couldn't, if I couldn't perform or, or, or record or write. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about your son. That's obviously. Yeah, yeah, thank be a you. Thank you. Tough situation. No, I, I get that. I, for, for me being in the garage, uh, you know, tearing apart an engine or a gearbox or something like that, that for me is very therapeutic. The, the, the cost of screwing it up is so high <laughs> yes. that, I, that I have to have an enormous... You have enormous, to be good at it. <laughs> you have to be, have this enormous focus on it to, to get it right. And the process of doing that, I forget about all the other, all the other stresses uh, of, of the daily life. Music is different because it's, um, it, it, it doesn't come as naturally. It, okay. takes, more, it takes more work and I, I don't... You know, I don't feel like I always have the musical skills I need in order to do what I'm trying to do. Okay. And, I, you know, great. I'm hard on myself. You can say that. <laughs> but uh, th that may be true. But in any event, there's that feeling that something is always a little out of reach. Yeah, I understand. So it's, I understand. It's, I, 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 I don't treat it like work. So no. it, it's therapeutic to the, effect, to the extent that, well, I can lay something down. I can listen to it. I go, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of digging this. I need yeah. to write some lyrics and, uh, and get out the vocal mic and... And, uh, you know, finish up this track. And so, you know, I've got, I've got a bunch of tracks on the go right now that, that are in various stages. We ever going to hear anything on Spotify? Yeah, I don't know what I'll do with it. I mean, I, first I need to finish a bulk of material and weed yeah. out the crap and then, uh, and then figure out where to, where to post it. I'll, I'll stick up a link and anybody who wants to listen or care, then. I have a suggestion. Uh, a lot of people think I have to release an album, uh, you don't have to release an album. You can release a single, you mm. know? So a lot of people get stuck on that thing. I want to, I want to create and I want to release an album, but that is such a monumental task that mm. a lot of people will spend years trying to get the songs together for an album when they could have been much more productive by just releasing singles. So mm. that, that's my, my unasked advice. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, 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 that, that's a good piece of advice. I haven't, quite decided what platform yeah, yeah. yet. And yeah. for, first, first I need to get some songs to the point where I'm actually like, okay, that's done. Yeah. 
now, uh, now I can move on. It, you know, you know what actually is really satisfying for me about it is that uh, because I worked in a recording studio, I actually I did a demo in. Oh, when was that? Ninety one. I did a demo. I went into the studio, and because I was working at the studio, whenever it wasn't in use, I could use it. Yeah. Uh, which basically meant that I would pull all nighters, and uh, I I did uh, I did a demo where where I played all the instruments myself. I borrowed a drum set from my my college roommate, and uh, drove my parents crazy practicing drums in the basement. And uh, yeah, I went into the studio and actually cut a whole demo where I played everything, which was oh. a, a, a monumental and insane undertaking. Yeah. But I really, really enjoy the recording process. Um, it is fun. In, in many ways, much more than I enjoy playing, I enjoy recording and mixing and, and producing more than more than the actual playing. Yeah. So I get, I get, I get hung up in that. And uh, so my, my focus actually um, this fall was, was on, on learning, learning all the new tools I got and then starting to, to dig into it and being able to, to create in that way. And it's become this fantastic scratch pad. What I used to do on a cassette four track at home. Now I've got unlimited digital tracks in logic pro, right? It's a whole other oh, world. Oh man. I tell you, it's an endless pit that you can fall into with all the different kinds of gear that's out there. And, 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 uh, I've learned that I cannot buy too much at one time. Yeah. Because because I will lose myself. Everything else stops. Uh, it's almost like I'm in a new universe, you know, and leave me alone so I can explore this. Yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> I, yeah. I try and remember to go back to old school. You, you can maybe see sitting behind me are uh, a yeah. couple, couple of uh, those. Those are custom made hand wired two pads. Nice. So, so uh, yeah. that's like old school guitar cord amp and nothing else. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Then, then it's just all about playing the guitar. So. I'm all about a, uh, a pod, uh, pod XT live and plugins. Uh, because in any kind of uh, group where I've performed, I've always just been the lead singer. So I've never really had a need for, you know, cabinets and amps and, and, and all that stuff. So uh, for both my guitar and bass playing for recording, it's, it's real simple. Pod XT live right into my uh, DAW and, and various plugins. Right. But that is cool. That does look cool behind you. I need to, maybe I need, maybe I need to go old school. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. That, that's really old school. <laughs> Vintage guitars, chord, loud amp, and you know it's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't beat that. There's yeah. there's an authenticity that uh, you're not gonna find anywhere any other way. Yeah. Hey man, listen, I uh, I, I just want to say thank you for 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 doing this. We uh, wow, we planned this uh, over a month ago, so it's good to finally to finally get it done. Um, and again, congratulations on your success. I think it's so cool that. Uh, that you started this. I love seeing people succeed. I love even more seeing American expats succeed because there are so many challenges. There's, uh, for, for me at least, moving from the States to Norway, there's a certain element of trauma in that. And a lot of us don't do well with that. So when I see someone like yourself who has actually made it, man, I think is a beautiful thing. And, and hats off to you, man. I, I love it. I, I really appreciate that. I, I do see like on the Facebook group, you know, there's some people that definitely struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah. For me, coming to Norway was easy, but I had, you know, I had my wife and I had, you know, sort of a, a good environment around me. And, uh, and coming to a small town actually was, uh, was tremendously positive. Um, I had, I had Snoopy and we, we went to a small town. Um, 
which was which was a good thing because I felt in a way that I was coming home. I'm from rural Ohio, so to come to a small area of Norway was great. But but I and and I did well in the sense that uh, you know I was speaking the language within a month, four or five weeks. Uh, I had a job that just fell into my lap. I was fully prepared to be unemployed for a while and and just kind of take a break. But I I got a job right away, uh, learned the language right away. But still, there was this element of um, uncertainty. No, uncertainty is too mild. Fear. <laughs> I, I was afraid. I had no clue what I was going to do with myself. But to see where I am now and to know that I walked <laughs> that journey and made it and then I see other people doing the same, it's uh, let's let's count ourselves among the, the, the fortunate because. Yeah, for, for, for sure. For sure. And, you know, it, it requires no matter where you come from in the U.S., and certainly for us coming to a town with 350 people in it from San Francisco Bay Area, it's a, and it's a massive change. I think sure, a lot of people sure. feel like they've landed on Mars. Yeah. Um, but I was so ready to embrace the change, and, and un, un, unless you're unless you're willing to to embrace your you know your adopted home, yeah, you know you 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 can't forget your guest here. But unless you're willing to embrace it and learn the language, become part of the community, see, and uh, I, I you, have, you're going to miss out. Yeah, and I have since embraced um, all things Norway. But when I first came here, uh, I, I didn't I didn't want to come here. It was kind of forced. It was kind of forced upon us. So it's. Uh, I, I guess it's all in in mindset. It's all in circumstance. But but regardless, there's just a lot. There's there's a there's a plethora of challenges that people have to walk through uh, as Americans come into Norway. And, and that's not to say it's not a good place because it's a great place to live. I love it. I'm so glad I'm here uh, uh, rather than being back home in the states. But. Uh, but that doesn't come without challenge, though. It's 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 no. not easy. Um, true. Yeah. Absolutely true. No, it's a uh, it's it's a big change. Now I've been here so long, I feel pretty integrated. But uh, at the same at the oh, same I, time, I hate, that word. Know, I, I hate that word. Yeah, but I, I still I still uh, work. Uh, I, I I'm still me. I still I still operate with, with my own <laughs> with my own set of thoughts, you know, and uh, I'm kind of halfway teasing. It's just uh, I, I, I push against that whole word and concept of integration, because to a lot of Norwegians, to too many Norwegians, uh, being integrated means that you drop everything that you once were and you become as them. Mm. And I don't believe, yeah, I just don't believe in that. I wouldn't fit that definition, but I am, I'm, I'm entirely comfortable here. Yeah. You know, at, yeah. At the no, same I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of teasing you. I, I know what yeah. you meant. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I need a lot of variety. I, I, sure. I you know, we, times are not great for traveling, but, uh, but you know, I like to spend a lot of time in Spain as well. I and mean, the one oh. thing I don't like about Norway, the climate, I grew up in this climate uh. and, you know, spent so many years living in it. When I escaped it and moved to California, I thought, Oh, finally, so, you know, but I don't live here for the climate. There's so no. many other things. Pe- yeah. People are, people are nice. It's a friendly environment and, you know, but you, you, you get out to some degree, you get out of it, what you put into it as well. And that you is have very to, you have true. That is put, very put true. yourself out there and make an effort. It's, it's, it's not just enough to say, uh, you know, I think I'll have corn on my taco. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that's, that, that, that's not the route, you know, right. to, right. to be, um, to be part of part of the community and, and sure, uh, sure. Well, like I was, yeah, like I was saying, you know, mindset has a lot to do with it. You have to have the proper mindset, and you have to you have to have a goal. You can't just come here and and exist. 
you have got to kind of hit the ground running. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a goal. And you have to have the mindset of success, which it appears that you have had from the get-go. Uh, perhaps. I have also been very fortunate, so I'm uh, not going to discount that. I feel very, very lucky to have, have been given the opportunity I, I was. And, you know, on me is that I, uh, I saw the opportunity and took it. You know, that's that that's where the ambition comes in and, and the, the drive to succeed. And, you know, an opportunity is nothing if you don't give it 110 percent and try and make something out of it. So but I've, I've been very fortunate. Well, I'd love to get out there and uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's beautiful out west and it's been a while since I've been there. But I'd just like to shake your hand and congratulate you face to face. Maybe you can serve me. I don't know. Do you guys have non-alcoholic beer? You have a glass? I can get a glass of water, right? <laughs> Yeah, we have non-alcoholic beer also. Yeah, well, there's a place for me then. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, Evan, I, uh, again, I, I, uh, I'm so glad that I got to speak with you. Um, I think my listeners can gain something from hearing your story. It's a story of inspiration. It uh, definitely inspires me. Um, that's why I had you on. So I want to thank you for coming on my podcast and, uh, and, and putting, some, uh, putting some positivity out there. We, we, we need it. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Evan Lewis, everybody. Bye now. Thank you and goodbye.